Well, thank you so much. This is a very, very special Sunday for me. One year ago, this Sunday, my grandson, Truett Treadaway, preached his very first sermon at the church I pastor up here, Bear Creek Baptist Church in Glen Heights. So about two weeks ago, I called him and I said, Truett, you know, the first anniversary of your first sermon is coming up in a couple of weeks. How would you like to preach for me again? And he said, oh, yes, I'd love to. And so I said, that's great. I said, I'm so looking forward to hearing you preach. <clears throat> and then about three days ago, my daughter, Heather, called me, and she said, uh, Daddy, you know, Brian is sick, and he needs somebody to fill in for him this Sunday. Would you consider doing that? I said, oh, no, 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 I can't do that because I want to hear Truett preach. <laughs> but you know, daughters have a way of kind of twisting you around their little finger. And so she said, Daddy, now you can hear Truett preach on the podcast. And he wants to hear you preach. So he can hear you on the podcast and you can hear him. I said, okay, okay. Yeah, I, no sense in arguing with Heather. And I figured, you know, it's because she wanted to hear me preach, but I think she's listening to Truett this morning. <clears throat> but she can hear me on the podcast, so that'll work out okay. But I am so, so thrilled to be here. And Brian uh, does not have COVID. That's good news. He was tested negative for that. Praise the Lord. And I think he is one of only three people in America who actually have the flu. <clears throat> uh, he has just the old-fashioned flu. And speaking of old-fashioned, I'm just glad to be here. That's, I am just thrilled to be here with you this morning. I want to talk to you today about uh, spiritual unity. What is Christian unity? You know, uh, this last week, I've heard a lot about unity. Almost every speech I've heard, almost every uh, political broadcast I've heard, they talk about unity, 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 unity. Well, I believe in unity. The Bible believes in unity. But when the world talks about unity, it doesn't mean the same thing as Jesus meant when he talked about us being one. The unity that the world's talking about is a unity by force. It's a unity by threat. They'll say, you know, here, here, here's our idea of unity. It's the same unity that Mao had. It's the same unity that Hitler had. It's the same unity that any socialist or communist country has. It's the unity that says, sit down, shut up if you don't agree with what we're saying and you don't have any right to disagree. Now, that's not what I call unity. I call that unity by threat, unity by economic threat. We know in Revelation chapter 13, we're told that there will come a time when there will be such a powerful governmental force that says to people, if you do not agree, if you do not follow what we say, we're going to make it impossible for you to speak out, it even impossible for you to buy or sell, or have a job. And that's not the kind of unity that I want to be a part of. It's a unity that comes by the threat of canceling you, that you just don't have a voice. You have to sit down, be quiet, agree. It's the unity even by physical threat. 
and the unity by compromise. Well, I want to tell you, the Bible does want us to have unity, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but right now, actually, I want to share something with you that's not in your notes, because I didn't give you any notes. <clears throat> but if I'd have given you any notes, this wouldn't have been any, because it just came to me this morning while I was walking my dog. I was uh, walking Buffy this morning, and was praying for our country, but I was also praying fervently for the, for the future of the church in America. And God just uh, reminded me of a story in the Old Testament. And Truett, I mean, uh, uh, Truett's preaching. Hunter, this, this won't be in the notes up there right now. But I thought, you know, for when, when Joseph rescued his family, brought them down into Egypt, you know that story. For 200 years, the children of Israel had favored status in Egypt. They were honored. They were appreciated. They were revered. They were listened to. They lived in, in the, the best part of the land. They prospered there in Egypt. And the Bible says, and then there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Now, that didn't mean he didn't know about Joseph. He certainly knew about Joseph, but he didn't reverence Joseph. He didn't acknowledge Joseph as having anything, being anyone special. And the Bible says then he began to persecute the people of God. He began to make their life hard. And I thought uh, for 200 years here in America, the church has had favored status. We've had the home court advantage, basically, in America. Did you know that? And back when I first became a pastor, back in the 1800s, uh, uh, pastors were considered as kind of key people in the community. They were listened to. Even the civic authorities, when they wanted a, a word that they, they considered a, a word of wisdom, they'd call for the pastor to come in and, and speak. That doesn't happen now. As a matter of fact, pastors are kind of pushed to the edge now. They're told, you know, be quiet. Just don't, we, don't, we don't want to hear what you have to say. So we have lost that home court advantage. And, uh, and in the years that are ahead of us, we may begin to live out what Jesus taught his disciples. He said, in this world... You will have tribulation. You will have pressure. You will have opposition. The Apostle Paul said, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus must experience persecution. Now, I've known none of that in my lifetime. I have not had any kind of real persecution. But I believe the Bible when it says that that's a possibility. In many countries, many countries today, Christians know what that passage means. But how do we deal with that? How do we deal with both the home court advantage and the opposition? And then God showed me something this morning. When Joseph died, the Bible said he gave commands to his sons and his, his brothers, rather, and he said, when you leave here, 
The time is coming that you will leave Egypt and go back to the land that God has given you. And when you leave here, take my bones with you. And you know the last verse in the book of Genesis ends with, and Joseph died and they buried him, they put him in a coffin in Egypt. And there was this box of bones of Joseph. And Joseph had said, when you leave here, you will leave here someday. And when you leave here, you take my bones with you. And for the next 200 years, that box of bones sat there and every Jewish father would say to his son, son, you see those, see that box of bones over there? That's Joseph's bones. And someday we're leaving here. And when we leave, we're supposed to take those bones with us. And that little boy would say, wow, that's good. It's a good story, daddy. But they didn't leave. And that little boy grew up and told his son, son, you see that box of bones over there? Someday we're leaving here. And when we leave here, we take that box of bones with us. And his little boy would say, that's what grandpa said, isn't it? I'll tell my son too. And for 200 years, they had favored status. And every time they would walk by that box of bones, that box of bones was saying to them, don't get too comfortable here. This is not your home. I know you have favored status. I know things are going well for you. I know that you're prospering. But this is not your home. And that box of bones is shouting to you, don't settle down here. You're going somewhere else. And then there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And he made life hard. And as these Jewish men and women and boys and girls began to suffer and they began to feel the wrath of Pharaoh, they began to feel the persecution of the Egyptian authorities, they'd glance over at that box of bones and it was almost like they could hear, don't worry. I know things are tough. I know the lash is heavy but you're leaving here someday. You're leaving here. And by the way, the Bible tells us that when they left, the book of Exodus says, and they took the bones of Joseph with them. And it says in Joshua, and when they entered the land, they brought the bones of Joseph with them. The bones of Joseph are mentioned several times. And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the faith, the great faith Chapter, chapter 11, when it talks about Joseph's faith, it says, and by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, gave commands concerning his bones. And I thought, God, we need a box to look at. We need something that we can look at and say, say, while we're prospering, we need to be reminded this world's not our home. And if we're suffering, we need something to look at and say, this world is not our home. We're leaving here. And God said, you have something better than a box of bones. You have an old rugged cross and an empty tomb. 
and you can look at that cross and that empty tomb anytime and it'll say to you, don't settle down here. Don't worry about what's going on here. I know it's hard or I know it's good, but this is an intermediate state. You're leaving here and you're going to your home, your true home. Well, that wasn't in your notes. <laughs> but I do want to talk to you about unity. The Bible is concerned about unity. God wants us to have unity. Unity is important, but there's a specific kind of unity. And that unity, uh, the Bible says, can two walk together except they be agreed, Amos 3.3. 3. No, I can't have unity with some people. There are people who are so much in opposition to who I am, what I love, what I believe, that we could never walk together. Now, we could work together. If I were on a ship with somebody and the ship was sinking and water was coming in, I wouldn't care whether they agreed with me or not. I could help them bail water out of the, out of the boat. But we couldn't sit down and have sweet fellowship together if they didn't believe the truth the Bible says in Psalm 133:1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That is good, isn't it? I love to have unity with my Christian friends. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then in 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. See, God wants us to have unity. Ephesians 4, 3 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Jesus prayed for that unity. He said in John chapter 17, they are not of the world, speaking of us, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So how do we have unity? We have unity if we believe the truth. Together we stand on the truth. We have a, some foundational truths that we stand on, and those truths are what give us true unity. The Bible says if the foundations are removed or destroyed, what can the righteous do? So I want to talk to you today about five foundational truths that we must believe, that we must agree on. And... Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say, if you don't believe these five things, biblically, you're not truly a Christian. That's, that's pretty serious, isn't it? There are a lot of peripheral things that people can disagree on, but there are five things that we have to agree on. All five of them, I'm starting with the letter V. Those of you who have known me for years know I love to alliterate stuff. And so I'm going to start these with the letter V. And the first one is verbal inspiration of the Bible. That simply means that the Bible is not the book of the month. 
It's not the book of the year or the century. It's the book of ages. It is God's eternal word. And that every word in the Bible is true. In fact, uh, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. Every word of God. When Jesus was encountering Satan in the wilderness, every temptation Jesus answered with the word of God. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I'm telling you, when I hold my Bible in my hand or my iPad with my Bible on it, and I read it, I am reading the words of God. Now today it's under attack. It's being ridiculed by science, by technology, by government, by every, just about every place. But I'm saying this is one of the foundations that I rest on. The Bible is the word of God. And li- listen, just a couple of verses, and I'll move on to the next V. But uh, for 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Know this first that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Isaiah didn't sit around and think, oh, I think it'd be nice to say this and this and this. No, no, God's Spirit spoke to him and gave him the very words to say. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When I read Jeremiah, when I read Amos, when I read uh, uh, Matthew, or when I read Romans, I'm reading the Word of God. Every word. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's, It's the breath of God, the Word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, that is for doctrine, that's telling us what is right, for reproof, that's telling us when we're not right, for correction, that's telling us how to get right when we're not right, and for training in righteousness, that's telling us how to stay right once we've gotten right. And so that's what the word of God is for. And I praise God for the word of God. And when somebody says to me, well, here's what I think. Here's, here's my opinion about this or about that. When somebody says to me, you know, I don't believe that, uh, that, that God created the world. I say, well, you're wrong. Because the Bible says it starts off with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When somebody says to me, well, I'm trying to decide how many genders there are. I say, well, you know, I can settle that real quick. Because the Bible says that God created the male and female. That's just simple. So I said, well, I'm trying to decide about marriage. I've got a, a, a guy says to me, you know, I've got a boyfriend and, and I, we're wanting to get, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're a boy. You're wanting to marry another boy? Yeah, my opinion, I said, look, your opinion 
is, as, is worth as much as my opinion. Nothing. What does the Bible say? And the Bible says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Yes. There'll be one flesh. So when I want to know what's right, what's true, I don't go to uh, psychology. I don't go to sociology. I don't go to some higher academic uh, uh, university. I go to the word. And the Bible defines all scriptures given by inspiration. And it's for the purpose of doctrine. That's what teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So that's the first V. Y'all get through here about one. <laughs> Second V is the virgin birth of Jesus. Now you say, well, now, why is that so important? And here's why it's vitally important. I, I had a professor back when I was in, in college back years ago, I had a Bible professor who said, well, you know, the virgin birth, that's probably a mythological story. And I wanted to get up and walk out of the class because it's not a mythological story. In fact, one month ago, we were celebrating the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew 1.20, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Luke adds to that in Luke 1.35, and the angel answered Mary and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, why is that so important? Here's why. Because if Jesus had been the son of some man in Adam's line, he would have needed a savior. He couldn't have been the savior. The only way that Jesus could do what he did, die for my sin, was for him to be spotless and sinless. And the only way he could be sinless would be if he was born at, of the seed of God, not the seed of man. And so, the virgin birth says to me, Jesus was sinless. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Praise the Lord for that. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And the, the fact is, Jesus never sinned. And that qualified him. And by the way, the reason he never sinned, one reason he never sinned is because he was born of a virgin. So you understand that? Have I... Kind of made that clear? Yes. Okay. So the verbal inspiration of Scripture, 
the virgin birth of Christ and then the vicarious atonement of Jesus. Now, vicarious is not a word we use a whole lot, is it? Hunter, how many times have you used vicarious this week? Absolutely not. None at all. Okay. It's not a word that we use a lot, but I needed a word that started with a V. <clears throat> and vicarious is the right word. Vicarious is something that one person does in the place of another person. If, uh, if, if somebody at school uh, was chosen to be the, the math student of the year and they were gonna give him a medal, but somehow or another he got sick and couldn't be there, his brother could go and say, I'm standing in for him. I'm vicariously receiving the medal. Let's get it where I got that. The vicarious atonement of Jesus is that Jesus died in my place. I deserved it. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe. That's what the vicarious death of Jesus means. Listen to these verses. And by the way, the hard part for me this week wasn't finding verses to illustrate these. It was deciding which of a hundred verses I would use. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And then Romans 5, 6, and 8, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good man, someone would die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you how I learned about vicarious punishment. When my brother and I were little boys, uh, I was maybe eight, he was five. It was a Saturday morning. My mother needed to go to the grocery store. She didn't, felt she couldn't leave us at the house. And she was not in a good mood that morning. Don't you hate it when mama's not in a good mood? And uh, so she called us to her and she said, boys, I've got to go to the grocery store and I've got to take you with me. But I want to tell you something. You better not misbehave in that store. And she said, and I don't know why she said this, but she said, if you get in that store and break something, I'm going to wear you out. Oh, we knew what that meant. Some of you kids don't know what being worn out means, but <laughs> it meant we were going to get a thrashing. So we went with her to the store, and we followed her right along the uh, produce aisle. But when she turned to go up the next aisle, we thought it'd be more fun for us to get over about four more aisles and pretend we were in the army. And so we're over there and I'm hiding behind the, some cans of green beans and I'm pow, pow, pow. And my brother's over behind the corn. Bing, bing. And then we decided maybe we ought to be helicopters. And so we begin, mm, and I'm, mm, butter, 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 butter. and all of a sudden, one of my rotors <laughs> caught a big glass jar of mayonnaise. 
and pulled that thing right off the shelf and it hit the floor and just <laughs> didn't crash because it was full of mayonnaise, but just and three things happened at the same second. Number one, I jumped back out of the way because I didn't want to get mayonnaise on my toes. I was barefooted, of course. I didn't wear shoes till the ninth grade. And, uh, and the second thing that happened, my brother, he come running over looking. He had never seen that much mayonnaise. And, and the third thing that happened was our mother came around the end of the aisle. And she saw me standing over there with my halo shining. She saw my brother standing there looking at that mayonnaise, and she just exploded. She came down that aisle like a freight train. (laughs) And she grabbed Don by the arm, and she said, Donald Ray Harris, that's a death sentence right there when you get all your name used, said, I'm taking you out, and I'm going to whip you. And off they went. Well, of course, I'm just standing there. I'm expecting any second for her to come back and say, uh, oh, I got the wrong guy. But it didn't happen. And a little while, she motioned for me to come on, and we went, and I got in the truck, and sitting there, Don had been crying, tears still running down his cheek. and Not a word was said all the way home. But when we got home, Don and I went out into the garage, and I said, Don, did you get a whipping? He said, oh, yeah. I said, did it hurt? He said, oh, yeah. I said, you cry? He said, yeah. But then what I really wanted to ask him, I asked him, I said, "Uh, you know, why didn't you tell Mama that I broke the mayonnaise? And I'll just never forget it. He looked right up at me, tears still in his eye. He said, oh, Nicky, because I didn't want you to get a whipping. And he said, I knew somebody was going to get a whipping. And he said, I'd rather it be me than you. He took my whipping for me. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't know many brothers that do that. He's the best brother in the world still to this day. But about three days later, it just bothered me so much that Don took my whipping. So three days later, my mother was washing dishes. I came in the kitchen. I said, Mom, you remember when we were in Mr. Creek Morris grocery store the other day and that mayonnaise got broken? She said, yeah, I remember that. And I said, you whipped on? She said, yeah, I remember it. And I said, well, you know, could you give me a whipping? Because I'm the one that broke the mayonnaise. And she rubbed her chin. I don't know why mothers rub their chins when they're thinking, but she rubbed her chin and she said, well, I can't give you a whipping for that. I said, well, you know, nothing's ever stopped you in the past. I don't know. (laughs) She said, "That, that whipping's already been given. And he took your punishment so I can't give it to you. And you know, I just went away thinking, that's pretty amazing. Eight years later, I came under such conviction of my sin that I was a sinner 
that I deserved death. And I cried out to God in my bed one night when I was 17 years old and said, God, I deserve to die. And in my heart's mind, I saw Jesus hanging on a cross. And it was as if the Spirit of God said to me, he's paying your price. He's taking your whipping. And suddenly I remembered that day at Mr. Creekmore's when Don took my whipping. And I said, that's what Jesus did. He died for me. I deserved it, but he took it. And that's what he did for you. People, listen. You are sinners. We are sinners. Sin has wages. It has a cost. And that cost is death. And Jesus took your death. That's the vicarious atonement. And then just moving along a little quicker now, the victorious resurrection is the next V. And my goodness, every place in the New Testament, I mean, every sermon in the New Testament, they are making a beeline for this truth. You crucified him, but God raised him up. God raised him up. Jesus is alive. The resurrection changed everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Listen to some of the sermons in Acts. Acts 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Acts 3.15, you kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. My point is, Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> he is alive. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And when somebody says to me, well, I don't really believe in the resurrection, then I say, then you're not a Christian. You cannot be saved if you don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then the last V is the visible return of Jesus. So the verbal inspiration of the scripture, the virgin birth leading to the sinlessness of Jesus, the vicarious death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection of Jesus, and then the visible return of Jesus. As the disciples were with Jesus when he ascended up into heaven, Acts 1, 10 and 11, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, 
Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And again, there are literally hundreds of verses in the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament, except the possibly, possibly the third John, mentions the second coming of Jesus. He is coming again. He's coming again. And these are the five foundational truths that I rest on. This is what the Bible calls the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? You say, well, yeah, I could pass a test. I could check all those out. No, I'm, I'm saying, do you believe it? You see, you can agree with all five of these and not be a Christian. To believe it is to receive it. It's to receive him. It is to, to here, here's my definition of faith. Faith is believing that what God says is true and believing it in such a way that it radically changes the way you live. And if it doesn't change the way you live, you don't believe it. As a matter of fact, the word believe in English comes from the old English word by live. In other words, what we believe is what we live by. And if you are, if you say, well, I, I believe all that, but you're out here living not knowingly sinful lives, you don't believe it because it changes your life if you believe it. Now, faith, faith is not just thinking. I know God can do it. It's thrusting yourself upon God for him to do it. One final illustration. When I was six years old, we lived out in the country we lived in a, just a, a square house that had four rooms, big, tall ceilings, and no closets, just four rooms, no closets, no bathroom either. And uh, my mother said to my dad, sweetheart, I need a place to hang our clothes, both of them. And uh, so... Uh, he went out, and about four or five hours later, he and some men come back, and they came carrying in a thing called a shiffer robe. You know what a shiffer robe is? It's a portable closet. And they brought that thing in. It just kept coming. I thought that was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And they set that up in the bedroom, and it was so tall. And I, I watched that shiffer robe, and I looked at it, and I thought, Man, I'd love to get up on top of that shift rope. That'd just be so much fun. I could touch the ceiling. The ceilings were 12 feet tall. But I knew that was impossible. But then one day I was in the bedroom there and I saw a chair and I saw some boxes and I drug that chair over and I set those boxes on it. And I, I got up on that box and I got my fingers, just my fingers on the edge of that shift rope. And I pulled and got my chin on it. And then I made a motion where I just threw my leg. I can't do it now, but I threw my leg up on that shiffer robe and rolled over. And there I was on my back on top of the shiffer robe. 
And I, I, very carefully, I stood up and I could touch the ceiling. I was on Mount Schifferobe. <laughs> I was so excited. And I was there just looking around. And about that time, my dad came in and he said, Nikki Charles. And ha, he said, What are you doing on top of that Schifferobe? I said, Bob, well, I'm, I'm just looking around. He said, how in the world did you get up there? And I showed him the chair and the box. And he said, well, that's pretty smart, son. And he smiled. And I thought, oh, I'm okay. <laughs> he said, uh, would you like to have some fun? Yes, sir. I love fun. He said, okay. And he moved the chair. And I thought, I'm going to die on Mount Schifferow. <laughs> and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to back up to the edge of the Schifferow, put your heels right on the edge, fold your arms, close your eyes, and I want you to just fall off, and I'll catch you. I said, uh, Dad, that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> that sounds kind of like suicide, I think. He said, no, I'm going to catch you. He said, son, it'll tickle your tummy. You're going to love it. So I backed up and I just couldn't do it. I tried. I could not do it. He said, son, don't you trust me? I said, well, daddy, yeah. He said, let me ask you three questions. Number one, do you think I love you? I said, well, sure. I know you love me. I'm, you're my daddy. I'm your son. You lo got to love me. He said, do you think I would lie to you? I said, well, no, sir. I don't, daddies aren't supposed to lie. I don't think you'd lie to me. He said, third question, do you think I'm strong enough to catch you? I said, well, I know you're strong enough. Just two nights before, after dinner, he run around the table and said to my mama, sweetheart, that was the best meatloaf I've ever eaten. And he picked her up and run around the kitchen with her. I wish I'd eaten more of that meatloaf after that. I thought, it must have really been good. And I thought, man, if you can carry my mama, I know you can catch a little boy like me. So I said, sure, I know you can catch me. He said, well, son, think about it now. If you know I love you, if you know I wouldn't lie to you, and you know I'm strong enough, why won't you fall off the shiffer rope? I said, that makes a lot of sense. I backed up to the edge, closed my eyes, put my hands across my chest, and woo, off I went. Man, it felt like I was falling for a minute, and it did tickle my tummy. And whoo, he caught me. I opened my eyes and looked right at him. Of course, you know what I said. Can we do it again? He said, sure, and he pushed me back up on that shiffer robe, and for the next five minutes, I invented ways to fall off a shiffer robe. <laughs> I went off forward, backward, sideways. I may have even done a flip. I don't know, and he always caught me. Years later, when I faced some real struggles in my life, God was saying, trust me, and I said, God, I just don't know. I just, and it's like I heard those same three questions. Son, do you think I love you? Well, well, when I look at the cross, I don't have any question about it. I know you love me. Do you think I'd lie to you? 
Well, no, no, you, God can't lie. Do you think I'm strong enough to take care of the situation? Why, why, why sure. You can do anything. Nothing's too hard for you. Then he said, well, if you know that I love you, you know I'm telling you the truth, you know I'm strong enough, why won't you trust me? And I let go. And I fell right into his arms. He caught me, folks. And he's never dropped me. And every time I've ever trusted him, he's always caught me. So I say to you today, these, this is the basis for our unity. If somebody says to me, I believe these five V's, then I say we can have sweet fellowship, wonderful Christian unity. But when somebody starts talking about unity that leaves God out of it, that leaves the virgin birth out of it, that leaves the word of God out of it, that leaves the death of Jesus out of it, that leaves the resurrection out of it, that leaves the return of Jesus out of it, I say, we can't have unity. We cannot have unity. I can work. I can serve. But I cannot be one with you apart from the truth. Do you believe the truth? The truth is what unifies us and it's what sets us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your true word. I thank you that we have a witness, a written witness that gives us answers to the questions of life. And I pray that you'll help us to trust your word because it's your word. We're really trusting you when we trust your word. And I pray that you will help us to believe in these foundational doctrines and believe them in such a way that they radically change our life. In Jesus' name, amen.